I am so excited to share with you guys my love for Catbird NYC, one of my favorite makers of jewelry on the planet. A few years ago, I was exploring Williamsburg, Brooklyn for the first time, and I happened to walk into this really sweet brick and mortar store, and I looked around and I saw that it was filled with the most delicate, beautiful, sparkly jewelry, all of which seemed like if I dreamed up a line or a type of jewelry, this would be it. I'm the kind of person that wears the same jewelry to go swimming in the morning that I wear to a formal wedding that same night. The thing about the jewelry that they make at Catbird is that it is jewelry that has this ease of wear and this sort of quietness that just slips into your life and you can put their jewelry on and you never take it off. And the thing that they became super popular for originally are these stacking rings, like these beautiful, delicate 14 karat gold stacking rings that you can layer and have this really delicate aesthetic. So if you're gonna spend money on something that you want but don't really need, do it with Catbird because it is an investment in yourself. You'll feel confident and beautiful in Catbird jewelry. Go to catbirdnyc.com. Welcome to Little Known Facts a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind the scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact, when I was doing Charlie Brown on Broadway, I was asked if I would spend a day with a journalist from a new cable station called New York One and show them what I do on my day off when I'm not doing You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I hadn't heard of the cable station yet, which is hilarious when you think about how New York One is now absolutely part of the fabric of New York City living. And I was really flattered because it was the first time I was asked to do something in an on-camera press way for the show. Anyway, I had the most glorious day walking around the city I love, talking about the city I love, and sharing with this journalist what I like to do in New York City and my love of Broadway. It was a win-win. And shortly thereafter, I became a consumer and big fan of New York One and of Roma Tori, who is my guest today. She is a journalist of the highest caliber. She has so much integrity and poise, and the idea that she can do hard news and also be a theater critic, but do it with such respect for the theater and all that goes into making a show is just one of the many reasons that I admire her so much. And I get to tell her that now, as she is my guest, Roma Tori of New York One on Little Known Facts. A-okay. everyone. My guest today is Roma Tori. Roma has been a news anchor and theater critic for New York One for over 25 years, and she is a recipient of an Emmy and more than 30 other awards. Before becoming a journalist, Roma was an actress and worked on numerous soap operas and off-Broadway productions before making the career shift to journalism. A colon cancer survivor, Tori is a staunch advocate of early screening and has spoken extensively about the need to raise awareness and the importance of cancer prevention. She's a proud board member of the National Association of Women's Artists, also known as NAWA. Founded in 1889, NAWA is the country's oldest organization that promotes and showcases women in the art world. She is a humanitarian, a wife, a mother, and a lover of animals. (laughs) Welcome, Roma Tori, to the podcast. Alana, it's such a pleasure to... You know, actually, my my uh, father's mother, my paternal grandmother's name is Ilona. 
or oh. Elena from Hungary. I wanted to ask you about this because I know that you have a brother, mm-hmm. and his last name is... Friedman. And your last name professionally is... Tori. So at some point, I would imagine, unless your mom, and, and, and it could be based on, we'll get into the history of your mother's before her timeness, mm-hmm. but I doubt that you each had different last names. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So at some point... Uh, yeah. Well, so my mother uh, made a name for herself as a journalist before she was married, and she was born Marie Tori Grossa. And so she decided to chop the grossa off, and only because it didn't fit on her byline in the newspaper. Wow. So they had to shorten it. So she kept Tory when she, even after she was married. And my father was very progressive. God bless him. He encouraged it. He was fine with it. And then, you know, when I decided to become an actor, I grew up as Roma Friedman, but okay. when I decided to become an actress, I kind of thought I would honor my mom and, and keep her name. And it, it just sounded a little more theatrical. Yeah, you know, yeah. So I kept it. And your father had no hard feelings. None at all. My father was just the most wonderful human being. When I was growing up, um, my father thought it was important for us to be exposed to our Judaism, our that part of our heritage. And my mother wanted us to continue to go to Catholic Mass. So if you can imagine, um, Saturdays we did temple and Sundays we did Mass. <laughs> That's a lot. That's so, a lot of religion. A little too much religion <laughs> for my brother and me. And then eventually my parents you know, just didn't want to do it themselves. And we had a church at the top of our street, and it was a Protestant church. So we were both confirmed as Protestants. <laughs> so Which has nothing to do I'm multi-denominational. Your... Yeah. But you've covered all the bases. Yeah. I think it's important. Like, we don't know what's going to happen next, but it sounds like you're good. Whoever is up there, you're welcome. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, and especially because, you know, I, I'm quite a mutt. So I was born Roma Friedman, and I took the name Tori, and I'm married to a Lopez. So I'm a one-woman United Nations. I love it. Now, is your husband, was he raised in a religious family? Yeah, he was. So he was raised Catholic, and because of that, we raised our children Catholic, although we're not terribly religious anymore. Um we did, of course, go to church for a, a while. But, yeah, he he insisted on, you know, giving the kids a, a Catholic uh, education. And so we went through the whole process, you know, CCD and all that. Right. So what year did your parents get married or around what year? It was 1948. And, uh, well, I can take you back. Um, at the time, my father was uh, very interested in the theater. And he had come up with a formula for determining what made a Broadway hit. And so he became very successful with that. And the only show I can, I, I'm can i aware of that I remember them talking about that was his first big hit was Finian's Rainbow in 1947. And then he had a string of hits after that. And so my mom was the amusements editor at the uh, World Telegram. Where was this? In New York City. Okay. And she heard about my dad and his tremendous success And so she called him up and wanted to do an interview with him, and she did. And then he asked her out on a date, and they were married about six months later. (laughs) Wow. And did they stay married? Yes, they did. That's amazing. I'm blessed. My parents were just the most wonderful, um, loving people you could imagine. Sadly, though, my dad passed away when I was just 13. Wow. Uh, But we were very close right up until the end. Wow. So when you say he had a knack for sort of figuring out what would work on Broadway. For a minute, I felt like, was he a bookie? Like you could bet on it? Or was he an actual theatrical producer? What was his relationship to the theater? And how did he come to even become someone interested in that? Yeah. Well, um, my father was quite a showman, you know, and, and I don't think he had performance talent, but he, you know, understood what it took to make it in this business. And he came up with a formula, and I wish I knew what it was because yeah. I put it into practice now. That's, but he came up with a, a I formula. I would like to invest yeah. in this formula. Thank you very much. Well, you know, that's uh, what – so what he managed to do was um, invite a number of very high-powered investors to be part of his consortium. And he persuaded them to, you know, give up a chunk of money into, you know, as investors, angels in a particular right. show. And so with his first show, it was a big hit, Finian's Rainbow, and then there were subsequent shows. And um, because of that, uh, he became a producer. And so he produced 
you know, he moved on from theater to television. He produced um, Sid Caesar, you know, your show of shows. And what? All those great old uh, programs. Are you from serious? The heyday. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So you were born in New York? I was born in Manhattan, in Lenox Manhattan. Hill Hospital. Yeah. Me too. Oh. Um, but you didn't grow up in the city. You moved to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. How yeah. old were you then when you moved? Well, I'll just take you back a little bit. So, you know, my mom was uh, a, a very celebrated, acclaimed uh, columnist for from the World Telegram. She went to the Herald Tribune. So, from the get go, in your lifetime, she was already established. In she her was very, career. yeah, yeah. They they were in that you know circle, that social set where you know they the Dorothy Parkers and you know all all the the great. The, the great names um, and uh, socialites from those early days. But during that time, she got herself embroiled in a, a case, a First Amendment case that um, involved Judy Garland, and she was ordered to reveal her source of information, and she refused, as any good journalist should, and she was cited for contempt of court, and um, the, she and the paper appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, and uh, they refused to review the case, and so it reverted back to the lower court, and my mom had to serve time in jail. Now, were you born yet when this happened? How old were you? Uh, I was nine months old. <laughs> okay, so you, you know this because it's a famous story, but you have no recollection right. of her being gone. Right, but because um, of her fame or infamy, as some mm -hmm. people might see it, uh, she was invited to become the first woman reporter to do hard local news. And she had a choice of going to any city that was owned by uh, the Westinghouse uh, network. And at the time, I think it was Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles, San Francisco and Pittsburgh. Uh -huh. And, you know, Pittsburgh, smoggy, you know, disgusting Pittsburgh. But uh, my brother and I had just been born. Um, and so Are she... Are you a twin? Uh, no, my brother's uh, exactly one year okay. older than me. Irish twins. Uh, yeah, we're as Irish As they twins. say, yes. Yeah, even though there's no Irish yeah. there. Um, but anyway, we had just been born, and she said, I'm going to go to the um, city that has the best public school system. You know, for bravo her. for my mom. Yeah. And so she chose Pittsburgh, and it turned out to be a very wonderful place to grow up. And your father, that was fine for him, too, in terms of what he wanted to do? They yeah. did it. And so she nice said, of you to ask that because, um, you know, it was kind of unfortunate because my father really was in his element in New York. You know, they were at the Lambs Club and, you know, they socialized with all those great folks. And then he had to give it all up and go to Pittsburgh. And, right. Um, but at the time, you know, my mom was offered this job at KDKA, which is the CBS uh, affiliate. And they had promised him that they would find him a job. And it didn't come to pass. Ooh. But um, he, you know, he managed to do pretty well for himself. He produced a bunch of shows. He brought Ravi Shankar to the United States. Oh, you my know, God. Remember Ravi yes, Shankar? Yes. Yeah. And, um, and Tom Jones. He kind of discovered Tom Jones. At least that's how I recall. So, you know, he, he did all right for himself. Is Nora Jones his daughter? Yes. Okay. Dominic. You mean Robbie Shankar? Yes. 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 Not Tom Jones. No, not Tom Jones. No, not Tom Jones. I'm going to segue right now. So I'm married to Dominic Famusa, yes. who's an actor. And right after we got together, I produced actually a play called Tape that mm -hmm. he was in. And you reviewed it. Yeah. And you gave him a phenomenal review. Yeah. And from that moment on, no matter what would be going on in our relationship, anytime I had any criticism, he'd be like, whatever, Romatory thinks I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, like we've been married 17 years. He's like, I don't know. I think Roma would have been absolutely fine with my not putting my shoes away in the closet like you asked. So you become part of the fabric of our everyday life. And I thank you for that. I wouldn't praise him if I really didn't feel that because, <laughs> you know, I, I can unload. You can also unpraise. <laughs> you cannot praise. Anyway, it's just hysterical when I told him, you know, I've had many, many fascinating people sit in the chair where you're sitting. But when I told him that Roma Tori was coming and he was like, I'm sorry, can I come? <laughs> can I come in? Um, I just want to go back for a minute because I don't want to kind of gloss over and then I want to just get to you and and the incredible legacy you are creating in your own right as um, a really special journalist and someone who has been able to merge a love for theater and a love for mm -hmm. reporting, which is a r unique thing. Yeah. And you're a real trailblazer in that way. 
But I just want to hit on the case, this landmark case that your mother was, I mean, no one I know um, when they were nine months old had a parent who <laughs> went to prison yeah. for for something um, like that, maybe drugs and other things, but not like that. <laughs> something honorable. Something honorable, exactly. <laughs> In a world where we just need so much of that and more of that now yeah. more than ever. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that Judy Garland was meant to do a CBS special, mm-hmm. and she was not showing up or, or wasn't going to do it. Right. And there was a, a rumor maybe or, or, or a quote from a CBS executive saying, well, she isn't happy with what she looks like right now. She feels heavy right. and doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to be on television feeling that way. But we have a contract with her. Right. Is that correct? You did your homework. I did my homework. Ding, ding, ding. Um, ding, ding, ding. Well, I love uh, journalism and I love Judy Garland. So uh-huh. this is a story meant for me. Uh-huh. So your mom went to print with the quote of the CBS executive without – and it was that who they wanted the name of? Is that – Right. She would not reveal. They wanted her to divulge the the name of the source at CBS who gave her that quote. Because Judy Garland sued when that quote appeared. Right. So uh, it was actually my father who tipped my mom off because I guess he was at CBS and he heard the rumblings mm-hmm. and my mom was approaching a deadline and she needed something to write and about. And that was and good. So she called the, her source at CBS and he gave her the quote and then she instantly called Judy's uh, husband, who was also her manager, Sid right. Luft, and told him what she was going to write and, you know, said, I'd like a comment. And he said, we have no comment. And the, the story broke. And it was a big story. You know, at that time, of course, Judy Garland was, you know, such Judy a... Judy Garland. Such a, you're right. She was such a star. So everybody went back to Sid Luft and said, you know, what are you going to do about this? And and then at that point, he threatened to sue CBS uh, for libel. And But the only way that suit could could go forth was to get the name of the the man who made that uh, statement. And they had to go back to my mother. And she said, absolutely not. I'm not going to reveal my source. No, mm-hmm. you know, no self-respecting journalist would ever consider doing right. such a thing. And the, you know, the, she went up the, the ladder of the court system uh, and through one court after another. And, and each time they insisted that she reveal the name. And she said, no, I can't do that. And but it's some interesting things that came out of it. One of her uh, very closest friends was an attorney, and it was the attorney who uh, worked on the uh, Army McCarthy hearings, not Roy Cohn. On okay. the other side, the, the uh, attorney who it was Joseph N. Welch, who was the attorney who represented the Army. And um, he had said to my mother, and this is how sexist things were back then, he said, oh, for God's sakes, Marie, he said, you're acting like an agitated housewife. Just give up the guy's name. Oh, no. And um, and then he said, you know, your children are going to grow up with having a, a mother who's a jailbird. Do you really want that? You know, and my mom said, I, I couldn't I, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't go to jail over something like this, you know. Also, so. by the way, with a nine-month-old and and a eighteen-month-old at home, yeah, and and not knowing what would that really mean, right? right? And right. and so, did she ever talk about what her experience was in there? Did she feel protected? Was she scared? Was it well, you know, because it was such a big case, it was front-page news, yeah. and um, she said that she had more press than the Rosenbergs, if you can believe it, and. Um, because she was, was that going on at the same time? It was no. The Rosenbergs were before okay. her case. Um, okay, but she said that because she was a, a celebrity inmate, right. they painted her cell, and she said the stench was overpowering. Okay. You know, she could barely breathe. Right. And, and then she said, um, in the shower, there are all these water bugs, so she never took a shower the whole time. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the it was. It was initially a 30-day sentence, and then the judge uh, lopped it uh, down to 10 days. But he told her that after uh, the 10 days, the moment she stepped out of the the jailhouse, he would approach her and demand that she reveal the source. If she shortened, if he shortened her sentence, no, he did shorten the sentence, right? But 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 he wanted that from her in return for doing that. Well, and no, no, he just said at at the end of your ten days, I'm going to approach you again, and if you don't reveal the source, I'll send you right back. And so you know, it it was like, so my mom had this hanging over her head, you know, and it was terrifying. But um, her best friend in jail was a, a woman who killed her husband uh, in self-defense. And then she went back uh, some months later after she got out of jail and and testified as a character witness for the woman. You know, it was some cr- crazy stuff, crazy stuff. 
That's amazing. I feel like there's a film in there. There's it's sort of spotlight meets Chicago, well, right? Like it's a little bit of... And, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, ce- celebrity involvement. Her, she was very close to Jackie Gleason and um, I forget a couple of others, but I think it was Jackie Gleason that, <laughs> it was so funny, sent her a pair of handcuffs that were fur-trimmed. <laughs> and then um, somebody else sent her, this is so incredible, a cake with a saw baked into the middle of it. And for now, real? Yeah, for real. It was it was a gag, you know. I mean, these were all her, you know, silly friends. Um, and Mike Wallace uh, somehow managed to get himself into the jailhouse to do, you know, the interview with, wow. with my mom. Is that something we can see? Is that is there a film of that that's available? Uh, you know, there is, actually. The the Mike Wallace interview yeah. it was buried in the archives at CBS, but it, it is there. It's I think if you Google it, you might be able to find it. That's incredible. It's fascinating. And my mother had... You know, back in those days, I guess, you know, women in the that high-end social circle set um, kind of adopted a sort of a British accent. Well, you know? Catherine Hepburn. Yes. Yeah. And um, so in the interview, my brother and I make fun of her all the time. Um, you know, he, he said, I understand uh, you have two young children. She said, yes, I have two young children, and they're being raised by their nanny, their governess, who's a very lovely woman, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is a mom... woman from Brooklyn. Right, <laughs> right. Well, my mother, who didn't become uh, a journalist but became an English teacher, said part of your, you know, getting your, your teaching certificate was that you had to have this mid-Atlantic fake Sort of, you know, like Kathleen Turner esque accent is yeah. part of, you know, it's kind of, of neutral sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, she's got it back. Years <laughs> later, she got it back. Well, at some point, you became someone who fell in love with the performing arts in your own right. Clearly, it was in your blood. Yeah. And all these people are in and out of your life. And it sounds like there was a lot of glamour and a lot of hard work in equal parts that you were exposed to. Uh, well, you know, I have to say my my parents were out a lot more than they were in. Mm-hmm. And we did have this uh, wonderful woman who I regarded as my second mother. And in fact, my parents were out so much that from uh, the time I was born, I guess from the time I was three months old until you know I went off to college, she lived with us. And she only spoke Spanish. So Spanish was my first language. Right. My mom had a hard time communicating with me in those early years. Um, and, you know, don't misunderstand. I am I adored my mother, you know, but she was a working woman. Mm-hmm. And back in those days when, you know, my brother and I were born and she was writing her column, you know, because she was a chain smoker, uh, we arrived a lot earlier than we mm-hmm. should have. And she didn't have enough time to um, gather together um, substitute columnist to take over for her while she was having us in the hospital. And so on the day we were both born, she had her typewriter brought into the hospital room and she was typing away on her column. Okay, that's and in those days, there, there was no maternity leave. You right. know? So my mom was in the hospital, I guess, for about a week because back then they would let you stay yeah, longer. Yeah. But the day she got out of the hospital, she went straight back to work. You know, there was no time off. Wow. Where, where does that come from? That <laughs> sort of... It's kind. I mean, it, my guess is that that is not how she grew up, based on certainly where she was from. Mm-hmm. I mean, were her parents more working class? Yeah, her. Um, they're very Italian. Mm-hmm. Both her parents, both from Sicily, and um, hardworking like you wouldn't believe. So but, your mom was first generation. Yes, and she, you know, she thought she was going to be a bookkeeper, but it was a wonderful. Teacher, and I can even tell you, Dr. Sirota mm-hmm. at uh, Lafayette High School in Brooklyn. Shout out to Dr. Sirota. <laughs> Sadly, no longer with us, mm-hmm. but if his family's mm-hmm. around. Um, and he inspired her to go into journalism because at that point she was going to be a bookkeeper. She didn't. She had no idea what she was going to do. Well, today is Teacher Appreciation Day. Yeah. So to Dr. Sirota and to all of the Dr. Sirotas who help us find our gifts when we don't yeah. always know where to find them ourselves. Absolutely. Wow. So he really encouraged her. And where did she go to school? Uh, you mean college, right? Yeah. She went to NYU. Uh-huh. Uh But interestingly, she she went to well. She went to night school at NYU, and during the day, she was looking for a job as a copy girl. But, of course, um, there were no such things as copy girls or really copy boys back then. And so she had to resort to a little subterfuge. And um, after, you know, pounding the pavement uh, after she graduated every single day trying to get herself into a newspaper, she decided she was going to pretend to be a reporter with Who's Who in America and she walked into the World Telegram, and 
she told the secretary of the managing editor that she was here for her interview with the managing editor for Who's Who. Oh and she God. said, well, we don't have an appointment. And she said, well, there must have been a mistake. I definitely called and all that. There must have been some mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that British... Noah, Coward, <laughs> Noah Coward phoned ahead. He absolutely has set this you're, up for me. Yes, yes, you're most certainly mistaken there. <laughs> so she um, she managed to get in. And, and the guy, you know, I guess he... He figured it out right away, and he said, "You're looking for a job, aren't you?" And I think because she's Italian and he was Italian, and, they connected, you know. And he said, "All right, you know, this kid has moxie. Come on, Paisan, yeah, yeah. we're going to do this. We're going to get you in the newsroom, and you know, the rest is history." That is incredible. I'm not kidding, Roma. This is the most. I mean, have you written this all down? Mm-hmm. Is there is there a script somewhere of this story of this woman? Well, you know, she wrote uh, a book called "Don't Quote Me," and so there are a lot of stories in there. But mostly, those are stories because it was it was um, focused on her jail episode, right? And, of course, and all of the celebs that she interviewed, and you know, she became very close to quite a few of them. And you know, at the time, Doubleday was really only interested in you know in the the boldface names. But her life story, no. And and sadly, when she passed away, I was actually asked to write, you know, a, a book and sort of in tandem with my story. Um, it was just too painful. My mom and I were just so, so very close. And mm-hmm. even to this day, it's been 20 years, you know, mm-hmm. but to this day, I... I reach for the phone and, you know, she's not there. It's I can sad. only imagine. Yeah. So when did you start acting? Believe it or not, I wanted to be an actress from, you know, I, I don't know if, if my memory serves me correctly, but I think one of my first shows was seeing Mary Martin in Sound of Music. Okay. And okay. I don't know if that's even possible considering how old I am, but that's I, have, your feeling. I have this memory. Right? Okay. And um, so I always wanted to be an actress and I was always, you know, chomping at the bit to be in plays and things. So in Pittsburgh, there was a TV show for children and they had um, it was at the end of the show. They would always feature the children who would raise money for muscular dystrophy. Okay, and it was the March Paul, of Dimes or something? Was, or, yeah, yeah it, different. Well, the Paul Shannon show, and he had this thing, and it was a kit, and you would order the kit, and he would tell you how to put on a, a carnival, and the, the, whoever raised the most money that month or whatever it is would appear on his show. So my brother and I, I was in second grade. My brother was in third grade. We decided we were going to put on not just a carnival. We were going to put on a play. <laughs> so we said we were going to write our own play. Can you imagine? I mean, it's so great. Six, what, how old are you? Five, seven and eight years old. Yeah. And we had a friend uh, up the street who was in fourth grade, and he, we said we would write a show and put it together. So we told my mom, and she was all excited, and she said, oh, you know, we can get TV cameras and we'll do a whole story on you. Oh, my God. So, Marie. Marie the, for the win. The yeah. night before our big performance, it was Uh-oh. a Friday night. My mom said, okay, let's see your dress rehearsal, kids. And we were like, uh, well, we haven't finished writing it yet. <laughs> so my mom. We're, we're good on a deadline, Mom. We got this. <laughs> my mom was very close to Fred Rogers. And okay, you've got to be kidding me. She had she <laughs> had been on his show a number of times. Yeah. Times as um, Marie the reporter. Yes. Um, okay. So she called and she said, you have to help me. Please come up with something. I have to, you know, bail me out here. This is really embarrassing. They sold tickets and everything. And so he asked David Newell, who played Mr. McFeely on the yes. show, to come over to our house oh my God. and work with my brother. I mean, we stayed up like all night. Is everyone in Pittsburgh? Yeah. <laughs> is that where Fred Rogers and Mr. Yeah. McFeely are? They were all in Pittsburgh? Yeah, yeah, WQED. See, this is all the Malcolm Gladwell of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. you had, you have to have this this other thing happen where like you live in the town where Fred Rogers lives. Like it's crazy. That stuff happened in Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah. And it was such a friendly town. So anyway, um, Mr. McFeely... <laughs> Save the day, and like he does, and he did the show with us, and oh he walked God. us through the land of make believe on on the stage in our Stephen Foster Elementary School, and lo and behold, we did raise the most money, and we did appear on the show, and you know, and a star was born, yeah, <laughs> and that was the beginning, yeah, and you sang. Um, we sang. We did everything. Well, so then in fifth grade, mm. my brother and I auditioned for the Pittsburgh Playhouse production of The King and I. And it was actually my idea, and I kind of dragged my brother along, and um, he got the role of Prince Chula Longcorn, and I was just one of the kids. And um, that was the show 
where the bug really did bite. Mm-hmm. You know, that was it. That's what made me decide theater is my thing. And uh, it was directed by one of the most wonderful human beings on earth, um, a man named Tom Thomas, who um, sadly passed away about a year ago. But he was a mentor to us. And uh, it was such a wonderful production. Florence Lacey played Tup Tim. I don't know if you know Florence, but um, she was in Evita on Broadway and she did a number of productions. Um, And so from that, I ended up going to – Tom started a summer theater called the Odd Chair Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And there were some great talents there. And so I spent, I think, two or three summers there. And I was an apprentice. And one of the other um, apprentices alongside me was Robbie Marshall. And uh, (laughs) so we did a bunch of shows together. Uh, We did hair, not that we were... And was he a dancer already? And Not really, no. No? I mean, this was, for him, this really was his first foray into, Mm -hmm. you know, professional theater. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But, you know, what did we do together in hair? We, We were in the chorus... But uh, our jobs were to hand the towels to the actors when they came off the stage after the nude scene, mm-hmm. and you know, at the at the end of the first act. There are no small parts for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted. I was. I think I was fifteen or sixteen at the time. I wanted to, you know, be uh, naked to, to be naked on the stage. At, <laughs> but uh, Tom said, "No, no, you're oh. underage. This is not legal." Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that more than ever in a director, actually. But Robbie, you know, Robbie didn't think it was. Uh, appropriate, you know, for somebody our age to be dealing with naked people on stage. So he had to get permission from his parents. You know, it's it very cute, really cute. I I know. I think about that now. I have a 14-year-old daughter. Mm. I consider myself an open person, but I might be like, I don't know if she needs to see all those grown-up yeah, that, people coming a off stage. Little too, well, you know, you grow up fast in the you theater. Do. That's right, kid. Yeah. So when it was time to go to college, did yeah. you think I'm going to major in... Theater? Well, so I went to Tufts University, and I sort of selected Tufts because I know they had some kind of, you know, theater program, though, that was more academic, yes. you know, than performance. Um, Although a lot know, of acapella going on at Tufts. Uh, yeah, yeah oh, you know the— <laughs> I do, the Beelzebubs. The Beelzebubs, <laughs> and there's another one, yes. My my brother-in-law. Jackson and, Jills. Yes, exactly. Anyway. Yeah, so I I, uh, I went there, but, you know, my mom had some good advice, and she said, don't major in the theater. You can— you know, do do some, you know, acting if you like. But she she thought if you're going to go to college, you might as well, you know, make the most of it mm-hmm. as an, you know, as an academic pursuit. So I majored in English and history, and uh, I was grateful for that. Especially, well, it's all serving you well, yeah, right? Especially now, yeah. But are you a singer? I like to think I can sing, but I'm not good at all. And, you know, I have to be honest, I at some point you assess yourself, you know, and I went on to do a lot of theater, and I, you know, I was in film and some TV, and mm-hmm. but I will tell you, I'm, I just wasn't very talented. I, I, the the heart was there, you know, the a lot of effort went into it, but uh, I just I couldn't, I couldn't give up myself huh. in a role, you know. I had to hold on to who I was, and I I know what it took to be a great actor, and I, you know, at some point I realized I didn't have it. When I was um, in high school, my mom took me to David Susskind at the time was producing a TV uh, movie called Franklin and Eleanor or Eleanor and Franklin, mm-hmm. I forget which one, with Edward Herman and Jane Alexander. Yeah. And so he was also a very, very good friend of my mom's. And so she said, come on, let's go see them shoot the film. And so I met him and he said to me, so, kid, you want to be an actor? What are you, crazy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he said, name an actor that you really admire. And um, so I said, uh, Laurence Olivier. And he said, terrible man. You know, <laughs> he went into this whole thing mm-hmm. about how, you know, how insecure and how petty. And I don't know, he just really slammed him. But he said, you know, great actors, just something happens to them. And, you know, they, they're they just not real people for whatever the, I guess he had some difficult times with his uh, with the actors in his films, but right. um, he tried very hard to dissuade me from it. And but what I did take from it is that it it does you know require that you kind of take yourself out of yourself. Um, I'm not being very articulate right now, but did you study acting? Um, yeah, well, I went to HB 
okay. studios. So when you got out of school and came to New York, you and I, you know, I did a lot right. of acting in in college. I took right. a lot of acting classes, right. but I was at HB for quite a while, and I just realized I just didn't want to give up who you. I was. Or just, I mean, may I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I don't know. I think it makes a lot of sense, but it seems to me when you describe your parents and your childhood and the adventures that mm-hmm. you went on, that there was a tremendous kind of um, mentorship. I mean, watching your parents and your mom in particular at a time where most of your friends' moms were not doing what your mom was doing. Not at all. Right? No. Like you saw someone who didn't have to give up being herself mm-hmm. to live a life, an authentic life in that way, and a meaningful life. Yeah. and who had children and didn't give up herself to have children, right? right? Like, what an amazing role model. So, I don't know. I think it's, um, you might have had an incredibly fun life doing acting, too. Who knows? And I don't know that you have to be really good to be successful. We know that as well. She really, she did balance. She balanced it beautifully. And, uh, you know, even at her memorial when she passed away and uh, Mike Wallace spoke and you know, he said he really admired my mother, you know, for knowing what her priorities were. And, you know, I have to say she was offered right after my father died, she was offered an opportunity to um, be the ho- the female host of the CBS Morning News. Hmm. And she was excited about it. And then she told my brother and me and because my father had just died, we were begging her not to move to New right. York, you know, right. and so she gave it up for us. And it was a lot of money that she turned down mm-hmm. and it was a big career move. And she um, she said, no, I want my kids to be happy. So and to stay settled. It was kind right. of unfortunate for her. But, you know, the turning point for me with the acting was one day I was offered a role. Uh, I, I was a dancer, too. And I was offered a role in a movie that was being shot in Japan but it was a nude scene, uh, mm. an extended nude scene. And, you know, in the 80s, there was a lot of that. And I said, I can't, I can't take my clothes off, not on film. And and I told my mother about it. And uh, we were, I'll never forget this. We were at Serendipity on East 60th Street. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting down over that frozen hot chocolate. It's and delicious. I told my mom that I had that offer and I was going to say no. And she said, well, you know, dear, not that I want you to strip on in in front of millions of people, but if that's the the attitude you're going to have, then maybe you better reassess your career goals. Uh-huh. And I think what she was trying to say is, you know, if you're an actress, you got to you know do the thing. You know, I mean, of course, you, there's a line that you right. You have Hopefully, to draw there's good point. writing attached to it. But um, yeah, but she realized, you know, that that's what actors actresses do. Mm-hmm. And if if I was going to create limitations for myself, then right maybe, at the very beginning, if yeah. you're already saying I won't do this and I won't do that, right. then maybe it's not the right. So that's at that point, I realized, you know, maybe I better give up the ghost and move on to something else. And was that that a painful decision or did it happen in a did the transition happen in a way that was kind of gentle to your ego and dreams or did it feel like okay I'm closing this door and I'm never going back and no you know you know when I realized it wasn't uh, the right decision was when I um, I ended up as a secretary at CBS and uh, and also I just so you know I decided I would pursue journalism like my mom but I told mm-hmm. her I don't want you to help me at all mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this on my own on myself and You're like, Mom, I can do this by myself, Mother. I'm going in. <laughs> I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them. David Niven sent me. Yeah. <laughs> no, darling. No, darling. <laughs> no, darling. Accept my help. Yes. Um, anyway, when I was uh, sitting there at the as a secretary and, you know, being... Wishing nepotism being, was not against your moral fiber. Being very abused. Yes. And, and uh, I had been offered a film role, you know, at that point, people still thought of me as an sure. actress. And I turned it down, and I didn't feel that bad about it, you mm-hmm. know? It wasn't like, oh, did I make a mistake or not? I, I didn't regret it, you know? I you just weren't thought, doing that anymore. This is my new life, and I'm I'm going to make the most of it. And, and you have <laughs> in a really big way. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, I've been in New York since New York One launched, mm-hmm. and I, I know you worked other places before uh, New York One grabbed you mm-hmm. and snagged you for themselves, and... It's kind of been a, a great privilege of mine to watch it grow into what has become a formidable presence in the world of news and, and culture. Yeah. 
it has been a real joy of mine to see you at the forefront of mm-hmm. all of this. And at some point, you were able to figure out how to blend these two passions of yours. Was was your job from day one at New York One to cover news and theater? Or were these things, like from the very beginning, did you say, okay, I'll come here, but this is what I want to do? Or did they see your talent and go, you know what, let's let's... We would like you to do this. Yeah, well, so before I came to New York One, I was at News 12 Long Island. Mm -hmm. And at the time, uh, I just sold myself. I I, I was the education reporter. And theater wasn't any part of my initial job description. But I sold them on the idea of letting me do theater reviews. And I also did film reviews for them. And they had a magazine called Total TV, which is kind of cute. And um, so they printed my reviews, but I was also doing them on air. But back then, I couldn't get um, the the press tickets, <laughs> um, or at least I couldn't get the early press tickets. So they would only give me like second or third night press mm-hmm. after it opened. Right. And so I would see the show and then get in the car and speed back to the the studio, and I would just sit up on set and you know do my thing. <laughs> Hair was a mess, you know. It was just very funny, but I had very little time to write or even. When craft did the a tradition of journalists going to see the play on opening night, calling in the review, yeah. and it being published? When did it change into over a few preview nights? Uh, the, it's more press week than than right. opening night. Is that something that happened a long time ago? Yeah, I don't. I must it, before my time. Before your time, I think in the sixties. You know, because when my mom was doing it and. Um, I'll tell you a nice thing. She saw her favorite show of all time was Death of a Salesman. And when it opened with Lee J. Cobb, and I remember my mom telling me she was just shattered seeing that. And so I, uh, but she told me that when it ended, there was this hush and nobody applauded, nothing happened, you know. And and at that time, she she knew she had to like get up from her seat and run back and start filing right. her, um, her review or whatever she was writing. And she couldn't do it. She was frozen in her seat. So um, I know back then they that, were still that, doing it that, that way. Was the the system? But and then when it reopened again with Brian Dennehy in the revival, mm-hmm. uh, what about ten or so years ago? I um, found out the seat that my mother sat in. I asked to sit in in that seat. That's so it's, extraordinary. It's kind of a nice nice thing. For yeah. Me. So you found a way to bring back this passion of right. yours. Knowing what it takes to put on a play mm-hmm. and to create a production, because you're an actress, mm-hmm. you may not do it anymore, but I feel like if that was your early passion, you still kind of walk through the world mm-hmm. with sort of what it's like to be in the company mm-hmm. and create something. Mm-hmm. Did it take time for you to kind of figure out, I know what they put into this and I know the power of what I say. How do you hold on to both of those things and sort of... Just do your job. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been on the receiving end of a lousy review mm-hmm. quite a few times, so <laughs> I know what it feels like, so I, I try to, you know... Right. You're not John Simon about it. No. Yeah. And uh, and I also understand the collaborative aspect of putting on a show, and I know that, you know, there's so many moving parts, and some don't work out as well as others, and I don't think it's, you know, fair to throw out the baby with the bathwater, mm-hmm. which... Some critics do, you know. Um, so do you try very hard to kind of be sensitive? Well, I try to, you know, single out the good parts and, you know, the parts that didn't work so well, I'll, I'll say. But I, I want whatever criticism I have for a show, I try to make it constructive so mm-hmm. that, you know, it doesn't hurt. And, you know, everybody has, you know, something that just doesn't work out in their lives. And it's it's just so wrong and so unnecessary to, to put people or put put their work down um, in such a cruel fashion as I have often read. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, I, I spoke to some artists about shows that I, you know, liked a little bit more than other critics. And, I, you know, they would tell me that they they considered giving it all up because they just couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, they couldn't take that, the, the, the hard criticism. And I, I certainly understand that. And so that's when I approach a show, I kind of have that. On the other hand, I know that people are paying a ton of money right. to see these things, and you know, you, you don't want to steer them in the wrong direction. No, you know, even if there's a show that um, isn't necessarily my cup of tea, I can recognize the quality of the work, mm-hmm. and I try 
to describe the audience for that particular show so that, you know, people know. Like, you know, a perfect example is SpongeBob. That's not for everybody. Right. You know, I, I took my son, who's, you know, such a big fan when he was a kid, um, and I knew he would love it. But, you know, certain people of my generation are probably, you know, a little lukewarm on that one. Right. And, um, but I want it known that if you are inclined to see that particular uh, type of show, it's being it's done great. brilliantly. It's really great. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I try to steer people in that direction. I had a nice uh, chat a, a while ago with uh, Jordan Roth. And, you know, when I introduced myself, it was to a group of, uh, of people who uh, were in the theater professionally. And I, you know, I said, my name is Roma Tori and I'm not your enemy. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And he was very sweet. And he said, no, but, you know, we really want to hear from the critics because it helps people decide, you know, where they're going to put their money. Because the last thing they want is an audience member to come in and say, you know, you sold me on this show mm-hmm. thinking it was this, and it turned out to be something really altogether different, and I wasted my time and money. How dare you, you know? Well, let me ask you. I will often be waiting to see a doctor, and some pharmaceutical rep will walk in and offer, like, you know, can I speak to the receptionist? And then they're offering their new drug and tickets to a baseball show, right? Like, there's ways in which they try to persuade certain doctors to use their things. Right. Have you found over the years that you have um, received gifts or people soliciting you to like their shows <laughs> with Graft. Mets tickets? Graft. <laughs> yeah. Payola. Uh-huh. Um, what is that something that's happened to you? Uh, no, no. I, um, you know, it's when I first started at, at New York One, we did get a lot more, if you could call them, you know, gifts. But they were like calendars and little things. <laughs> Right. But, you know, I'll tell you, going back to my mom's yeah. time, when when um, she covered the Glass Menagerie, they received um, these, it was like these glass um, menagerie animals that came from um, Tiffany that were beautiful. And each one must have been worth Great hundreds value. and hundreds of dollars, you know. And back then, yes, yeah. there was payola. Yeah. <laughs> But it was a great show, so it didn't matter. But yeah, that's that was the thing back then. It, that's illegal now. You can't and and being you know working at New York One, we're not even allowed to accept that stuff. So right, it doesn't happen. So how many nights a week are you at the theater? <laughs> well, you know this this last batch of uh, shows that right. were you know, rushing, um, rushing their yeah. openings. Um, I I think I counted nineteen plays in less than six weeks. Oh that my I goodness. Saw. That was exhausting, I yeah. have to tell you. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I kind of added it up, and I would have to say I've seen about 3,000 shows in my lifetime, most of them Broadway, believe it or not, because my first play, or the, I guess in the, the first month that I was reviewing plays was uh, Les Mis, the opening of Les Mis. Can wow. you imagine? 1987. Yeah. But prior to that, um, I was, you know, just as a as a fan of the theater, and I would go with my mother all the time. You know, she always had her friends inviting her. So, yeah, I would say I've seen quite a lot of theater. So how, obviously, you had your mom. How, who taught you how to be a reporter? Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Yeah, it's a good question because I really didn't take journalism right. classes. It sounds um, like you were on another road at the beginning. It's, it's like osmosis, mm-hmm. I would have to say. And, you know, I so admired the great journalists from, you know, way back when. And my mom is a role model. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. My, my mom was tough, you know. And as I mentioned, she was the first woman reporter to do hard news like a man. You right. Know? And actually on the in the TV Guide advertisement when she arrived in Pittsburgh, they had a shot of her with a cigarette in one hand and a scotch in the other. <laughs> right, like Edward R. Murrow. Right. And, you know, a woman had to look mm-hmm. like a man, too, mm-hmm. and carry all of the accoutrements there. Um, Did your mom go to leave the house each day with lipstick on? And, and Oh, yeah. Right, so she still had the kind of Jackie O she, of absolutely. that generation. Yeah. I mean, so much so that, you know, after my father passed away, it was quite a few years later, she married a, a gentleman farmer who had um, about a thousand head of cattle. And uh, there was one day she said he, God, he woke her up in the middle of the night and he said uh, one of the, the cows was having a difficult birth and he needed her help because um, she had to stick her hands up the he needed someone with smaller hands to pull out the the calf, and that is love. So, so I'm just yeah. mentioning this because she <laughs> she would put, you know, he'd say, "Just put your pants on," you know, put on blue jeans. She had to put her pantyhose under her blue jeans. <laughs> no woman would step out without no, the pantyhose first, even to help birth, even to help birth in the middle a of the calf. night. Wow, 
so that's her generation and, yeah. and her priorities. Always very, very proper, yeah. So when you began at New York One, was Pat Kiernan there already? No. No. Um, so, you know, actually, I was the, I, I found this. This is on the record. I, uh, I was the very first uh, on-camera person hired at New York One, and it was April of 1992, and we didn't go on the air until September of 92. And Pat Kiernan arrived, I think, five years later. Is there a familial feeling at your station? Mm-hmm. Is it like Mary Tyler Moore? What's the sort of vibe <laughs> there at New York One? Uh, it is a it's a family feeling at New York One. You know, um, so many of us have well, it, it, initially, so many of us stayed for a long, long time, and you know, through um, you know, through the years, people end up you know going elsewhere, but. For those of us who've been there the longest, um, there it is a, a family feeling. We're very, very close, and you know it's it's been a dream job for me because you know you hear all this crap about fake news, and mm-hmm. New York One, our you know journalistic standards are extremely high, and you know I used to think we were immune to all of that nonsense. Right? So, yeah, we do, we do we feel like we're putting on a, a quality product, and and you know our mission is to do the news the way it's supposed to be done. And, you know, in, in a way, a little bit, a, a little old-fashioned, you know, we, we go back to the, you know, the basic foundations of journalism, you know, getting getting it all right and less opinion and, mm-hmm. and, and more fact. It cannot have gone unnoticed by you that any deli, any place of business in New York City or New York State that has a television on, mm-hmm. New York One is on mm-hmm. everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. It has become like a, a landmark mm-hmm. of sorts in our city. What's its secret? Why is it so successful? Why is it on in every hair salon, every bodega, every deli, every barber shop? How did they figure that out? Well, you know, the, unlike so many of the other channels, uh, news channels in, in New York, we were started by New Yorkers. And initially, uh, we were told we had to live in the city. And um, so... I was, you know, I was born in in Manhattan, and uh, I I stayed in Manhattan for quite a long time. Uh, but everybody had to have a New York live in a borough. Have everybody had to have a New York background. Okay. And then, you know, it was very important for us to have Staten Island reporter and a Brooklyn reporter, et cetera. And so, you know, our beats kind of mirrored the newspaper system, and so people had a, a sense of like ownership with us that you know we were part of them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, I. New York One is known for not paying the highest of salaries, you know, considering what we do and, you know, relative to and the other hard you work. channels. But, right. you know, whenever I get on a subway, invariably somebody says, you ride the subway, you know, mm-hmm. but they love it. You they, and you know, Cynthia Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I'm not running for any of them. No, but you could. Yeah. You yeah, could. Yeah. And so when you were doing Inside City Hall, mm-hmm. I mean, is that a world that you knew? Did you? I mean, I've researched you. You did your homework wow. <laughs> very deeply, but that's very different. I mean, you would have a lot of people at the table at once, a lot of things going on in terms of city politics. Mm-hmm. Had you been interested? You can be interested in news, but not a political junkie. Right? Were you a political junkie? Yes, I was. You were. Yeah. So that was always something that you you fed off of. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I guess I have multiple passions, but politics was a was very important in my life, and you know, in fact, for a while. You know, when I was in high school and college, I thought of myself as going on to law school. I guess I I wanted to be the first um, Supreme Court justice. You know, yeah. so politics was a big deal. And you know, I do have to hand it to our um, first executives at New York One because they recognized the importance of politics as a as a a beat mm-hmm. in a newsroom. And they made it, and it's funny, we use the term sexy, but they kind of made it sexy. They made it very, you know, interesting and accessible to not just the, you know, the insiders, not just the political junkies, but to, you know, the the, the average citizen. And they made it um, something that that most New Yorkers could understand and, and uh, relate to. So when I think of the election in 2016 and, and you're handling the coverage of that election, how did you remain... Neutral, yeah. as the news was was as the numbers were coming out, we were all pretty stunned. And you know, on many fronts, it was a shocker for me. Um, but you know, on on 
another front, my daughter um, was at Emerson College, and she was covering for her school the election, and they gained access to Hillary Clinton's headquarters that night. And so she was all excited, and, you know, she was thinking, oh, I'm going to be there, and it's going to be so historic, the first woman president and all this. And, you know, you saw the polls. We were all expecting it. So it was very interesting for all of us, you know, and there was like this pall over the newsroom because we were all expecting a very different outcome. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was... It was quite a night, I have to say. I, I went home, and it was it took a while for me to get over the sh- the, the shock mm-hmm. of the whole night, as I'm sure so many in New York uh, did. But you know, it's funny. I, I I also worked in 2000 during the you know the Bush v. Gore election, and that too. The difference in that one, though, was that we didn't know who the winner was. You remember or what a hanging Chad was. This was a time; it was all new to us that that something could be thrown in this way. Uh, that one, they kept us on the air all night, and it was like I don't think they broke us until about six or seven in the morning, and had lost my voice at that point. Right, and we were it's like an eight show week. Uh, yeah, it was hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go to the special vocal doctor. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I you know I had some some history, you know, doing difficult elections. But, you know, that one in 2016 was especially difficult. So you mentioned your daughter and her covering it for her college. Is she interested in in continuing the family business? (laughs) Uh, She's far more creative than I could ever be. And so um, she's a filmmaker and she made a little documentary and she's, you know, she's just graduating and looking for her first job. And I'm very proud of her. I'm I'm blessed. I am. You know, I, I had some great parents and I have a great family and so, you know, the, the legacy continues, hopefully. So usually I end with my guest telling me an incredibly now hilarious, in retrospect, audition story. Yeah. But I wonder without, because you're still working at New York One and we want to be respectful, I know every business has moments where things are going terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Are there any funny stories or moments in the newsroom or in a professional setting where things did not go the way you had wanted them to go <laughs> that you can think of that come into your mind. I can take you back to something that I did when I was acting. Okay. Like no one's ever given Pat like a blank newspaper to be funny. <laughs> and he, do people play pranks with each other at uh, New York One? No, they're pretty no. professional. <laughs> okay. Although, you know, we had uh, – you know, we have a we used to do a sports show, a live sports show, and people would call in. And you know, before we realized we had to have a like a three second delay, people would you know say, <laughs> say things the darndest things as, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yes. No, but if you're, I can take you back to something that I, just occurred to me when when I was in college, I met my husband who uh, was a playwright back then, and still is, as a matter of fact. And very talented one. And um, can we say his name? Uh, Ed Lopez. There we go. Anyway, he and I started a theater company when we graduated. Our first show was Streetcar Named Desire, and I played Stella. And so there's we had a raked set, and he wanted me uh, and the, the woman who played Blanche to smoke cigarettes. And I was not a smoker. My parents were both chain smokers, yeah, but I, which is you know, probably why you never wanted to smoke a cigarette exactly. ever. So. We had this moment there where um, Blanche and I are getting ready to go to Galatoire's, you know, as the boys were playing their poker that night. And in the scene on this rake stage, I I took a puff of the cigarette and I passed right out. I just died right on that set. <laughs> and they were like, Stella! Exactly. <laughs> so I wake up oh, to hear, God. I hear, Stella, my baby sister, oh, Stella, Stella. And she says, you have to lay off the liquor. <laughs> And I said, don't you know I'm pregnant? <laughs> oh, my God. Do you think you were out for a significant, was it a moment or like a few moments? No, they said it was a couple of minutes. You know, they were like trying. But you know what? Nobody knew. No. Nobody in the audience knew. Well, how many times have you heard of like actors having heart attacks on stage? And yeah. finally, someone People has to go like, this is not part of the show. Is there a doctor in the house? Yeah, like, not till you hear really that. This is really happening. Yeah, right. I'm right. so glad you're okay. I'm so glad you didn't <laughs> hit your head very hard and that we have you here today. Yeah. Romatory, I'm so grateful to have had this time with you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for if, coming on. Ilana, and you know, and I'm a fan of your husband's and I'm certainly a fan of yours after seeing your Lucy Van Pelt. Yes. I, singled you out. And as you recall, I had some very nice things to say about you as well. You did. And I'm surprised I haven't said to Dominic anytime he's at all critical of me. Well, 
Roma thinks I'm <laughs> absolutely fabulous. All right. Well, thank you so much. Until next time, thank you, Roma Tori. A tremendous pleasure. Thank you. You're terrific. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.